Hey friends, Abdul here. Before we get started today, I want to let you know about a project that's really close to my heart. It's a new book I wrote with my co-author, Dr. Micah Johnson, called Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Now, if you know anything about me, you know I am passionate about Medicare for All, but particularly right now, because I think it would be so critical to stabilizing our healthcare system that has absolutely buckled under the weight of this current pandemic. Now, I'm really trying to make sure that these ideas in the book take off. We explain why the current insurance-based system has failed, talk about what Medicare for All really is and the politics of getting there. We really hope that it can become a bestseller, but we need you to help us. So I hope that you'll go to medicareforallbook.com and check it out. Pre-order now, out February 2nd. Thank you. Daily COVID-19 deaths broke 4,000 several days last week as projections show that we could reach over 400,000 COVID-19 deaths by the end of this month. A far-right mob invaded the U.S. Capitol in an attempted coup fomented by Donald Trump, which forced many lawmakers, many without masks, to shelter in place for hours, creating fears of a potential superspreader event among the U.S. Congress. And rather than hold on to 50% of all available vaccine doses for second doses, as Operation Warp Speed currently does, President-elect Joe Biden announced plans to release all of the available vaccine doses to ramp up first-dose vaccinations when he takes office. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. 2021 is already the longest year in American history. This is a podcast about COVID-19, but it's also a podcast about public health. And as I've tried to communicate throughout this series, it's impossible to have competent public health without competent government. So much of what we take for granted about, or at least used to take for granted about our country, is rooted in the sheer functionality of government. That streetlights work, that roads you drive on are paved, that water you drink and brush your teeth with is clean, that the air you breathe is pure and unpoisoned, that the public school down the street starts on time and keeps your kids safe while she's there. But here's the honest truth. If you've always taken these things for granted, it's a function of your privilege. In too many communities, these things can't be taken for granted at all. And when they can't, it usually shows up in health. So many of the health disparities that shape lives in low-income, disproportionately black communities or low-income rural communities can be explained by the lack of access to these basic things. But even for those of us who can take things like clean air and water, functional roads and safe public schools for granted, they aren't a foregone conclusion. They exist because of a political system that holds our public servants accountable to us to provide these things. In that system, we choose our leadership through a very circumscribed set of laws and policies that specify when, where, and how we do it. And all of that implies that our elected leaders will respect those laws and policies, and that they'll relinquish power if and when they're no longer duly elected by the people. That peaceful transition of power, it sits at the heart of our democratic society. It is the core of that functional government that the privileged among us can take for granted. And for the first time in modern American history, a democratically elected president of the United States attempted to overthrow that system. He attempted to leverage the power that we, the people, through a democratic election, gave him to thwart our choices at the next election. It was a scene of one of the darkest days in American history, a failed insurrection. They've not only marched, but they're inside and they're endangering a lot of people. It was a sea of lawlessness incited by the president. There has been tear gas in the rotunda and we're being instructed to each of us get gas masks that are under our seats. Here's the thing. 
he didn't do it directly, using arms and the state itself against itself. He didn't call the military to stop the certification process. Instead, he used the norms of a free and open society against itself. First, he undermined every other public authority other than himself. It began with the media. They are the fake, fake, disgusting news. Then it moved to expertise of any sort. I know more about ISIS than th the generals do, believe me. And then it moved to science itself. It'll start getting cooler. I you wish just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> I don't think science knows, actually. When he had undermined every source of objective information, he forced his supporters to choose between them and him. And too many chose him. You're the greatest president of our lifetime. And I will die standing in my boots as a patriot for this country. Then he started to set the table. He called the election process fraudulent even before it started. He made up allegations that voting by mail was inherently fraudulent. He made up allegations that undocumented people would vote in the election. He made up lies that politicians would work against him. And then, when he lost the election, he kept lying about that too. This is a major fraud in our nation. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. Frankly, we did win this election. What happened on January 6th didn't start on January 6th. It started the day he began to undermine objective truth to make room for his lies. He gamed one of the best things about our society, the freedom of speech, to undo those very freedoms for his political game. This is how disinformation works. Why am I talking about this in a podcast about COVID-19? Because the very same disinformation that created this attempted coup is the disinformation that has excused a failed federal response to the pandemic from the very beginning. It's the disinformation that has led us on a path to 400,000 deaths to COVID-19 in our country by the end of this month. And beyond this particular pandemic, it's the disinformation that strikes at the heart of public health. When you undermine government and you undermine science, there simply cannot be a functional public health system. People die because of it. Disinformation is deadly. Today, we'll talk with Dr. Simi Yasmin. She's a physician, former CDC epidemic intelligence officer, and author of the new book, Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them. We'll talk more about myths and disinformation in health after the break. My guest today is Dr. Simi Asman. She's a public health doctor and former epidemic intelligence officer with the CDC and now director of the Stanford Health Communication Initiative. She's also the author of a new book out today, Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them. Asima, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I wanted to first step back. Why did you get interested in writing about misinformation? Usually folks in our line of work, we think about information. But rare do we think about the misinformation that tends to undermine it. How did you get interested in this topic? I was forced to. I had no other way around it. Misinformation and health and science disinformation was plaguing my life and was the bane of my life mm. back when I first came to America 10 years ago, because I was serving, as you just said, as an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service. So for anyone who's watched Contagion in 2020, which is like many of us, that's the job that Kate Winslet's role is playing. And in that role, I would be sent to different hot zones, different epidemics are spreading. And my job was to stop the spread of contagion. 
contagion. And I quickly realized that no matter where I was set, no matter what disease I was tackling, the infection, the disease was not the only thing that was spreading. There were also health hoaxes and medical myths and all sorts of rumors that basically sometimes made it impossible for me to do my job. And yet all of my training at CDC, all my bosses, what they were concerned about was stop this virus spreading, stop this bacteria spreading. And I was thinking, hold on a second, this is a little myopic, this is a little bit narrow, because if we don't deal with the misinformation that's spreading, we're just not going to get a handle on the public health issues. We're not going to be able to protect people from these infections. And so I wrapped up my work at CDC. And after a few years, I went to journalism school thinking I would never go back to any kind of school after medicine Mm. and training. But I was so basically convinced that to be a public health doctor, it was not sufficient to know how to fight infection. It was really important to know how to fight the spread of misinformation as well. So tell me, why why do you think that this is the case? I mean, why is it that there's always a counter-narrative to the actual scientific narrative when it comes to an epidemic, an outbreak, a pandemic? What generates this? Why is this such a part of human nature? I like that you said always, because at the moment, we're so thinking about COVID, right? And people are like, oh, your book's coming out right in the pandemic. I'm like, yeah, I've been writing this book since 2015. (laughs) This book has been my life for the last five years because this isn't a new problem. And so when you look back at historical epidemics and pandemics, of course, there was always a narrative and then there were multiple counter narratives. I think it comes down to this being a part of human nature, this being a part of the world, but also very specifically when you're looking at epidemics and pandemics, they are scary. They are crises. We are losing our loved ones and there are so many unanswered questions that even science can't answer straight up, right? You can ask your doctor right now 10 questions about the COVID-19 vaccines. She'll be able to give you five answers, but there'll be probably five things that she just cannot answer. And yet, we need some level of certainty. We need someone to complete the circle. And often where you have scientists who are really, you know, transparent and honest, as most scientists should be, they'll say, oh, hands up, we haven't figured this thing out yet. We haven't figured this part of this out yet. And yet you'll have others, charlatans, scamsters come in and be like, oh, no, vaccines are dangerous or masks make you breathe in more carbon dioxide. And they're just giving people certainty and kind of completing that loop where there's uncertainty and there remain unanswered questions. So I think it's a real exploitation of the fear of Mm. these crises and that panic and people trying to give other certainty where sometimes there just isn't any. It's like human nature abhors a vacuum of information. And so, you know, we're going to look for an answer even when there isn't one. How much of this do you think is done on purpose by people who intend to manipulate others through this misinformation? And how much of it do you think is just people trying to impute an answer for something when there is no actual known answer at this point? And then the last question is, how much of this is just the Dunning-Kruger effect (laughs) in, in real life, right? People who think they know because they don't actually know what the bounds of knowledge are, generating information and then speaking with a lot of confidence about that, that then sort of drives that information out in the world. 
For sure. And so, you know, when folks hear me talk on these topics, they'll hear me say misinformation and disinformation. And I do use the two terms distinctly. Misinformation is like all that false information that spreads. Oh, if you eat garlic, you won't get COVID. Oh, if you do this, you'll get it. It's the false information that spread without any malice. It's your friend trying to help you out, but kind of telling you something that's just bunk. Mm. Whereas disinformation is that false information that spread with the deliberate intent to cause harm, either to you individually or to your society. And these aren't new, right? Think back to Ebola, the Ebola epidemic of 2014 that carried on until 2016. We had bad actors then from Russia and other places hack Yahoo news accounts and tell people, for example, there's an Ebola outbreak in Atlanta right now. That's disinformation because the the intent there was to kind of really cause panic, cause people to overwhelm ERs because they were scared to divert emergency services away from where they were actually needed. It's hard, to be honest, to like quantify, oh, this proportion of what's happening is misinformation. This much is disinformation. Sometimes it's even just hard to kind of unravel the intent behind something. And to be honest, although from like a scholarly perspective, and because I research it, it's nice to have these different labels. When it comes down to it, the impact of all of these kinds of false information can be quite similar. And for sure, we are seeing a concurrent pandemic of the Denning-Kruger effect right now as well, where you have people who are economists and know about health economics, but perhaps not about the particulars of infectious disease transmission, or you have the Nate Silvers of the world Hmm. and others who are like weighing in. And of course, everyone's entitled to opinion, but you have to be careful when your platform is huge and you have to be careful when this is not your expertise. And so you're missing the nuance and some of the information that you are sharing. And that certainly just kind of made it harder. I think so much of this online discourse, unfortunately, just causes more confusion, I think, amongst the public. Yeah, I really appreciate that differentiation between myths and disinformation. It's difficult, right? Because those of us who are in the business of speaking to the public about a very complex and challenging and uncertain situation when it comes to the number one, two, three, and four news story of the day, this pandemic, it's hard when people are choosing between somebody who's screaming an answer at them or speaking with a level of certainty about something about which they're deeply uncertain, to then compete with that. Remember that as a scientist, being honest about the uncertainty can kind of come back to kick you in the butt too. Because if you Mm. remember early last year, there's all this video going around. And of course, it happened where Dr. Fauci was saying not everyone needs to wear a mask. Maybe that was around Mm -hmm. February, March time, April, May, Dr. Fauci changes his mind. And he says, no, now you do need to wear a mask. So then Mm -hmm. there are many who reacted like, wait, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He changed his mind. Or why didn't he say this to begin with? And I remember at the time thinking, oh my goodness, we're not just having to teach people about the pandemic and this particular virus as we kind of go along. We need to do some remediation for everyone. We need to go back to some basics of scientific literacy, right? Mm -hmm. That science is not just a textbook. Science is not a bunch Mm -hmm. of static facts. Science is a process, actually. Science is how do you build on the facts? How do you test what we think are facts? And Dr. Fauci was, of course, doing exactly that. He was going on the best available evidence, the most rigorous evidence. And like any good scientist, he was saying, well, I said this thing last month, but I've got new data now. And based on that, I'm going to say something new. Except the way that it came across was the scientists don't know what they're talking about. You know, we actually asked him about that question when he came on our show back in the summer. And and that's exactly the point. He said, look, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the scientific process. That science isn't a book that you pull off a shelf and read the answer to. 
it is a process by which we ask and answer questions. And at times, the answers to the questions that we're asking are unknown. And when you're forced to make public policy under the gun, so to speak, sometimes if you're even applying analogy, which is what he was doing, right? Applying analogy from other coronaviruses to try and make public policy now, you're going to get it wrong. And that's a really, really important point. I want to ask you, you spoke to one example, but how overall has mis- and disinformation shaped the dynamics of this particular pandemic right now? My goodness, I think it's impacted this pandemic even more than we might have anticipated. So like I said, I've been working on this book for years. This is a phenomenon that's been around for centuries. It's not like health misinformation and disinformation is new. But had we tried to speculate, it would have been like, yeah, it'll be a problem with the vaccines. It might be an issue. But now we know from researchers at Cornell University that have analyzed, what was it, 38 million English language articles about COVID-19, that the single biggest drive of falsehoods about this public health crisis was Donald Trump. Mm. So you had people in the highest platforms on the highest offices of this land in the US being those beacons of false information. And I think that certainly amplified things in ways that many of us would not have predicted. And that's been dangerous. It's been so disheartening because it's hard work sometimes countering those falsehoods. And I think it's made us really wary about data. And so we want people to be healthy skeptics, like do your due diligence. And we can talk more about like what's steps you should take and stuff like that. But then you can kind of go too far. People are like, I read this thing in the New York Times, but it's fake news. I ain't going to believe that. Mm. And of course, that's been a whole disinformation campaign, if you like, from the current administration to really discredit and demean the work of journalists and of journalism. And then that backfires now, or it actually maybe not backfires, works exactly how they want it to roll out right now, which is people just are like, hands up in the air, I don't know what to believe. Yeah. Who's a credible source? And normally you'd feel really confident saying, oh, go to cdc.gov. And yet, what have we seen in the last few months? Man, it's it's really hard, especially as somebody who used to work there and knows that there are thousands of employees there who know their stuff and who don't want to be encumbered by political motives. But CDC guidance has been censored over the last few months. So literally, where do people go? Yeah. That is a critical point. And I want to ask you, it's clear that information moves far faster now with the advent of the internet and, and certainly social media than it did in the past. How have social media platforms been a part of the problem and what would it take for them to be a part of the solution? They've been a really big part of the problem, unfortunately, in terms of amplifying those voices that spread misinformation and disinformation and accelerating the speed. So like we keep saying, this isn't new, but it travels faster and farther now than perhaps ever in history. Mm. And then, of course, there's that research that came out of MIT in 2018 that found false information travels faster and farther than the truth. And we can talk about why that is. But on the face of it, you could just be like, do we just give up because this feels impossible when you have platforms like Facebook that have algorithms that if you dissect them, they reward engagement with false information. Mm. That's baked into the way that these algorithms work. And if folks want more information about those algorithms and exactly how they are making this problem worse, I'd encourage you to check out a report that came out a few months ago from this organization called Avaz. Some of what they found was that 
the content from the top 10 websites that were spreading health misinformation on Facebook had about four times as many views as the World Health Organization website, wow. as CDC, and about almost a dozen other like really credible sources. And then, of course, you know, Facebook will say, well, we're, we have fact checkers. We've hired this many people. They're going through everything. We're adding this health misinformation tag. But actually, when Avaz looked at it, only 16%, 16% of all the health information that they analyzed had a warning label from Facebook. It's there. It's unchecked. A lot of it is in these private groups, which I have to try and infiltrate like for my research. And it's hard to monitor it. But I think the platforms and not just Facebook, but Pinterest is a big one for the spread of anti-vaccine messages. Of course, there's also Instagram and there's Twitter. There's so many they need to be doing more. I mean, YouTube as well. We've heard all sorts of scary things about that algorithm and how it's enabled and enforced like white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. And how that's played out and misogyny, toxic masculinity. They need to figure this out. We need to put pressure on them to figure this out because right now it is massively amplifying and accelerating this problem. Who knew Pinterest? I mean, I, I uh, get my fair share of trolling on, on the others, but I thought Pinterest was a place you go to like, figure out how to throw the best baby shower you possibly could. I, I didn't realize. Yeah, or like a nice kitchen. What pillows do yeah. I get for my lounge? But no, Pinterest is a big one, especially for anti-vaccine messaging. I had no clue. And the point that you're making is that this sort of natural occurring phenomena is going to pervade any sort of tool, right? Implement that we give it. Mm -hmm. What does it look like to push back? You know, a lot of folks have been talking about real social media reform, and it looks like there's increasing pressure to do that. But what does it look like for an everyday person who is a proponent of, of real science trying to counteract mis or disinformation in their own communities or their own networks? How does one begin to do that? hard work, right? And I've been teaching classes on this for the, the past year, like before the pandemic too. And a lot of the classes that I teach actually are specifically for healthcare providers mm. so that we get really good at engaging with people who walk into our clinics and have very different views from us about vaccines or about certain medicines, for example, or about cancer and what could cure or cause cancer. And there needs to be a lot of empathy and a lot of compassion there. Make sure you're listening to folks. I will tell you, and this is going to sound funny, but I teach these long classes on all the things that you should do to build empathy, to build understanding, hear the person out, find common ground, work towards consensus. It's all based on evidence, right? And then in my family WhatsApp group with my family from the UK and Saudi, I lose my ish all the time. <laughs> and I do all, because like my aunties and my cousins will spread like really bad as well, like blatantly bad anti-vaccine videos and that they've seen on Facebook and they're so worried and they want me to look at it. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my, you know, again. And I do all the things that you're not supposed to do because I'm also human and I'm flawed. There are things that we know work and there are things that we know do not work. So don't do what I do in the family WhatsApp group, which is like get really annoyed start saying to people, why are you sharing this? Can't you tell it's fake? <laughs> because all that does is like make everyone upset and shuts down the conversation. It does start with finding that common ground that, okay, you may believe this thing, which is quite different to what I believe, for example, about the COVID-19 vaccines. What do we have in common? We all want this to be done. We want the pandemic to end. So finding that common ground, using empathy, having understanding, really kind of like understanding why it is that somebody would believe something that sounds quite absurd on the face of mm -hmm. it. Because 
there's just so much swirling around. Like it's hard for people to know what could be real and what isn't. And then I think the historical context, the spread of misinformation too, like even in this book, Viral BS, there are chapters in here that are about are chemtrails poisonous? Mm. Because that's a question I get Mm -hmm. asked a lot. And so I break that down. But then there are other chapters about the kind of experimentation that governments have done on people, poor people, black people, indigenous people, queer people, experimentation that happened in... It's so absurd that it should never have happened and it's actually quite unbelievable. And I think when you realize that, you're like, oh yeah, you know, I can actually see why conspiracy theories persist because Mm -hmm. governments and people in power, not just governments, but medical establishments, doctors, have done really shady stuff over the years. People have a lot of reason, especially some people, to distrust them. And in fact, I actually start the book, Abdul, about talking about my upbringing in the UK in like a very immigrant, conservative Muslim community where we all believed a ton of conspiracy theories. So I know that they can get annoying, but I also have a lot of time and a lot of like understanding for folks who do believe in some conspiracy theories because I'm like, oh yeah, that was me when I was young. That was me when I was in my teens. Mm -hmm. Having that context, realizing that there's not a one-size-fits-all message for countering false information and knowing that those conversations need to be a bit different for different communities, that's how you start to make a dent in this. Yeah. The point that you made about empathy, I really appreciate it because it's, it's important to appreciate that most of the folks who are spreading misinformation, they're not the source per se. They're just passing it along. And oftentimes they get into it out of, I think, two important drivers. One is fear and one is lack of power. And I think if you can't appreciate that somebody is looking to address or allay their own anxiety because they're afraid or because they feel powerless in a situation, you're never really going to convince them otherwise because all you're doing is either amplifying their fear or amplifying their powerlessness. And I think sometimes we got to step back. Now, when you're talking about folks like Donald Trump or these folks who are selling all kinds of absurd things on the back end of their disinformation, that's a different kind of disinformer. And I think we have to be really smart and thoughtful about who these folks are. But Mm -hmm. I, like you, get really frustrated. I spent half of my holiday just debunking a bunch of myths that people had because, you know, they'll come to you and ask. And, And part of it is just like, you know, I understand if there's some person out on Facebook who believes this stuff, but you... Right? You know better. I know. (laughs) Come on. You want to like shake people, but we can't because we're doing physical distancing. Yeah, that's right. It's shake their Zoom screen. Yeah, I really appreciate that point and the emphasis on empathy and engaging with somebody and and trying to find that common ground. So I got to ask you, I imagine that uh, a, a public health doctor and former EIS officer who studies misinformation has a lot of work to be doing in the middle of the worst pandemic in over 100 years. How have you been spending this pandemic other than with me and Wolf Blitzer on Saturday evenings? <laughs> other than that, I mean, that takes up a lot of my time because it's also what I was kind of studying before the pandemic happened anyway, right? So my work just kind of got amplified and took up more of, of my time. So this book is coming out, you know, January 12th today. And then I also am currently writing some other books, including some about the whole problem of misinformation and disinformation, but aimed at younger audiences so that we have like our next generation much better equipped and much better prepared than we were of them to like really deal with this issue. So I'm definitely, I'm writing some books, working on some documentaries and hanging out with my dog so that, you know, I just get to have some stress release too. But a lot of my time, let's be honest, as I think yours is too, is consumed with dealing with debunking myths, tracking the spread of misinformation and trying to keep people as informed as possible so that they can stay safe. 
Well, we really deeply appreciate you doing that. And we're grateful for the work that you do. And we hope that uh, we can grab your book, learn a little bit more about how to take on this myths and disinformation out in the world. And thank you for being such a proponent of logic and science and, uh, and empathy in a moment like this. And that was Dr. Sime Yasmin. She's the author of the new book, Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them, which is out today. Also a public health doctor and former epidemic intelligence officer with the CDC and director of the Stanford Health Communication Initiative. Dr. Yasmin, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Abdul. Stay safe. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. We continue to break COVID-19 daily death records, and the fallout of holiday travel and gatherings still hasn't really hit us. I know you've heard me say this before, wear a mask, wash your hands, and avoid gatherings, small and large. And when it's your turn to get a vaccine, do it. On that note, President-elect Joe Biden has announced that his administration will no longer hold on to 50% of the available doses of COVID-19 vaccine to save for second doses for those who already are vaccinated. Instead, they'll be releasing all the vaccine available. This is a clear departure from the Trump administration's strategy of withholding doses to assure that the second doses are available to everyone who's had a first dose. That'll be important to making sure we get everyone access to vaccines as early as possible. At the same time, it remains critical that people get their second doses, as that's how vaccines were studied and intended to be used. Furthermore, the most serious bottleneck in vaccine dispersal remains the last mile, getting it from cold storage in various communities out into people's arms. And that'll require a lot more on-the-ground operational planning and outreach than the Trump administration has offered. That's all for this week. Next week, we talk to renowned humanitarian, physician, and medical anthropologist Dr. Paul Farmer about what we can learn from the Ebola epidemic in West Africa for COVID-19 today. Oh, and don't forget, we've still got a few more of our Science Always Wins sweatshirts, t-shirts, and hats available at the Crooked store. They're going quick, so make sure to grab one before they're gone. Crooked.com slash store. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Huguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.